Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, We share insider lessons in how to get your first customer, grow companies, and what it really takes to build a business one customer at a time with our guest, Brant Cooper. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we shared some incredible lessons about sleep with one of the world's preeminent sleep experts, Dr. Matthew Walker. Now for our interview with Brant. Brant Cooper is the CEO of Moves the Needle and the New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, and The Lean Brand. He's helped startups go from idea to IPO, acquisition, and rapid growth. Brant is a mentor and advisor to CEOs of some of the world's largest companies and has been featured in media outlets across the world. Brant, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show. The concepts of lean entrepreneurship, customer development, et cetera, have been themes and ideas that have really informed my own thinking and I believe are some of the most important principles to understand in business. So I can't wait to dig into those. But before we do, I'd love to zoom out a little bit and hear about your business journey and how you came to understand the importance of those principles. Long story short, I came to the principles because I failed. You know, I lived in the dot-com boom and bust up in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
and this was all pre customer development, pre lean startup, pre lean entrepreneur. I was working for another startup, but lived through an IPO, lived through uh, acquisition, lived through rapid growth that then tailed off and didn't recover. And then just the whole crushing failure thing. And even in those successful startups, even in the successful businesses, there's just tons of small failures. And of course, I think, you know, part of the quote unquote entrepreneurial spirit is actually being able to bounce back from those failures. But more than that, it's about learning from them. And after the bust, middle 2000s, I was writing about some of these concepts that people were talking about with respect to learning, being in learning mode before executing. I ended up writing the first book that talked about customer development and lean startup and product market fit and all that great stuff. And Eric Reese then wrote the lean startup and completely blew the top off the market. And corporations were starting to look at this stuff because lo and behold, they launch all sorts of new products that nobody wants as well. And then wrote the lean entrepreneur, which was really just a deep dive into how do you run these experiments and what does that mean? And, and how do you go and understand your customers and really focus on data? What is the right data? What are learning metrics? Which I think is a fascinating topic because most people don't do that very well, especially the big corporations. You know, they're focused on OKRs and KPIs that end up being really execution focused and really what we need and what startup do very well, or at least startup investors, is measure the progress of learning. Are we learning day over day, week over week, before we're ever going to see the impact of all of that learning, i.e. millions of and millions of dollars? So that's pretty much what got me here today. I now run a company, Moves the Needle, that brings these concepts to very large organizations. Very interesting. And I want to dig into this. Before we do, for people who may have heard the term bandied about or aren't really sure what it is, Talk to me a little bit about what customer development actually is and why so many people either don't do it or get it wrong. Yeah, so customer development is developing your market, really, using principles that are similar to how we develop products sort of naturally. Engineering is used as sort of a scientific principle in developing products. It's iterative. It's trying something like writing code, failing because it didn't work or because there's bugs and then iterating on it. And that's how you actually develop a product that hopefully has, you know, few errors and does what it's supposed to do. But it's this iterative learning approach that Eric Reese captured in the phrase, build, measure, learn. And Steve Blank, who was really the founder of the customer development framework, wanted to apply those type of learning principles to how you go and develop the market. And oftentimes the market side, business model, pricing, how you're going to reach your market, your channels, how you're going to sell to them, the method of selling, those are often considered very execution sides of the business. It's commercialization is, oh, we know how to do that. So we're just going to go crush and a failure to do it means that you're not good enough, you failed to execute, and so we're gonna fire you and bring in somebody that will execute better. But that's a path for failure for the company because when you're launching a new product or you face uncertainty generally, uh, you know, we can touch on the pandemic if you'd like because now inside of core businesses, their core markets that they've always executed on are now different, right? And so when there's uncertainty, 
you can't just execute. Execution will, will lead you to failure. You have to go through this learning mode first. That's what Blank was capturing with the customer development is this learning mode, an iterative learning process to figure out who is the right customer? What's the right way to reach them? What's the right messaging? What are the objections that they're going to have when you try to sell them? How do you overcome those objections? And I think that the reason why people don't do this very well is number one, people don't want to talk to customers. Number two, they're thinking about scale too early. I can't go talk to customers because that's not a scalable effort. And three, people want to use automated technology. And so we can sit behind our keyboards and we can do all of our marketing and our selling and our product development and all of our hypothesizing and all the rest. We do that on our laptops or on our computers. And it feels like we're making progress when we're not really, because the market is the final arbiter. Your product's not done until the market says it's done. Your marketing doesn't work until people start responding to your messages. Your selling doesn't work until somebody gives you money. And so it's actually the relationship that you have with the market that determines the success of your business, not whatever it is you're doing on your keyboard. Those are all great insights. And it's so true. It's so easy to feel like you're being productive, proactive, hiding behind your computer. But really, until you get out into the world and start talking to customers and getting in front of people, you're really missing a tremendously valuable and rich source of feedback. You can't get why unless you're there in person and ask them why. Why did you do this? Why do you think that way? Why did you choose you know, this option? The why is actually giving you the insights. And then once you have the insights and you're able to capitalize on those insights, that's more valuable than your patent portfolio, to be honest. If you gain insights that your competitor doesn't have and you're able to capitalize on that, you win. And so it really is the opposite of thinking about scale. You scale, you know, marketing. I like to say marketing is the automated part of what you've learned to sell in person. In other words, if you're trying to convince somebody, and I don't care what it is, it could be convincing somebody to download your app. If you're having a conversation with that person and you're trying to get them to download that app and give you 99 cents for it, that conversation is telling you more than looking at the stats of how many downloads that you have. And so it's really that it's that relationship. Again, I, I use the term a lot with the customer that's going to determine what are the features that you need? What are the needs that you're solving? How you're going to reach them and, and all of that. There was this entrepreneur I was helping in Madison, Wisconsin several years ago now. And he had this kind of this cool application. I'm not really much of a fashion person, but this guy was building a fashion application and basically you would choose, it was like for e-commerce, if you choose one article of clothing, you would hit this shuffle button and it would complete the whole wardrobe, you know, down to the color of your shoelaces, I guess. You know, you know, that was pretty cool. Not, I wasn't the market segment, but I was mentoring this young entrepreneur. And so I asked him, well, what do you want? What do you want from me? How can I help you? And he said, I need a thousand customers. Oh, okay, cool. Great. How many do you have? Uh, none. I don't have any customers. Well, you don't need a thousand. You need one. And it was a beautiful day in Madison, Wisconsin, and the streets were just teeming with people. And I just kind of sat there and he's all like, what, that's it? Mentoring's over? And I'm like, yeah, go outside right now. Find one person that's willing to push that shuffle button. That's like, why do retail stores, the small mom and pop stores or the restaurants, why did they put that first dollar bill, they pin it to their wall? That was customer number one. Customer number one is how you get started. You can't get to a thousand if you don't get to one. 
That's a great story. And, and it really illustrates this key concept that it's so easy to get caught up in the trap of, oh, we want to scale and we want to have this lean, really agile infrastructure that can scale up and be a repeatable customer acquisition strategy and all of this. But the reality is you have to start with things that are unscalable and you have to go talk to people and get iterative real-time feedback to really figure out what your customers thinking, doing, and what they want. Yeah, that's right, Matt. It's all the way up to product market fit. You don't really know enough about your business to create the automated portion of your business until there's evidence. Product market fit is actually something we could talk about because it's a misunderstood concept. Product market fit is not the hypothesis that you think that you found the right product for the right market because you've talked to enough people. Product market fit, when Mark Andreessen coined the term, was really, you know, in a retail example, it would be you can't keep product on the shelf. It's one of those things that he described as being, you know, I don't know, really know how to define it and I don't really even know how to get there, but I know it when I see it. And the same thing in the digital world, it means that the market is pulling the product from you because you've made the right combination of marketing and positioning and product and, and all of these different levers that you can pull. And so it's not until you get there that you can really then create the scalable systems. And that's kind of a problem because you're already scaling, but you just see it over and over again. You know, Zoom is a, a more recent example. You know, they sort of flew under the radar selling their video platform, mostly to startups, I think. And, you know, they're trying to penetrate big business and then the pandemic hits and boom, just scaling out of sight and their systems start breaking their security holes, you know, the infrastructure is not holding up. And so all of the prep you do beforehand going, oh yeah, we're building this scalable stuff is like, nope, we got to redo it. We got to fix it. And so I do think people need to concentrate on putting, you know, solid business practices in place and you have to have architecture and I'm not dismissing all of that, but really you can waste a lot of time, money, energy, resources, building that stuff first and you're still going to have to fix it when, it when you hit product market fit. So get out there and find the product market fit first and then worry about all that. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You said something earlier that I thought was really interesting, and it's this idea of when there's uncertainty, you need to have information before you can start executing. How do you balance that concept with either the resource-constrained environment of something like a very early-stage startup or even, the, for example, if your business was materially disrupted by covid 
or something like that. How do you think about that when you have such a constraint of time or resources, you need to start executing on something. How do you balance that with the need to learn and iterate and, and get feedback? Yeah, it's tough. You know, it's tough just even in normal times. This is really Clayton Christensen's innovator's dilemma for big companies is they're so focused on executing that they can't get into this sort of innovation learning mode again. So it took me really quite a while, Matt, to come to figure out, I think, a way to do that. And it's really using agile principles. And, you know, this isn't like a scaled agile. You don't necessarily have to do scrum. I use the phrase agile with a small a because I think people really should get back to the core concepts that were written about in the Agile Manifesto. Smart people solve big, wicked problems if you give them the authority and the resources to go and solve them. And that's, to me, sort of this guiding light of Agile. And we can take the Scrum concept of sprints and backlogs, or you can look at a Kanban. Either one of those work. But basically what you're trying to do is when you're listing out all of the things that you know have to get done and you put them into what you're working on, your work in progress, you're just choosing some elements that are learning. So the balance, there's no trick to balance. If you've got a lot of execution work that you have to do, well, you got to get it done because that's really what's going to move the business forward. So people that are mostly on the execution side that don't face a ton of uncertainty, I'm asking them to throw in learning mode every once in a while, once a sprint, once a quarter even for some people. And the learning mode then is running, you know, real experiments. We're spending a whole day doing empathy work, something that's significant learning, but it's just building it into the to-dos. It's building it into your task manager. It's how you start finding that right balance. The other way to think about it, and I've got a, a tool that, you know, sort of a classic consultant's two by two on how one can evaluate projects or initiatives that are going on inside the company. And basically the two by two is vertically, you're looking at high impact items toward the top. So you think it's going to drive a lot of impact for the bottom and less impact is lower. And then the horizontal towards the right are where you're less certain about outcomes, or you can even put more certain on the right and, and less certain on the left. So it's kind of this known versus unknown. How confident are we that we have all of the information that we need, that we know our customers or we know who, what, who the stakeholders are and we know what their needs are. And so in the upper right, if you've got high impact, high confidence, then go execute on those. That's just pure execution mode. Put your teams on that to go accomplish that. But any of those things that are starting to drift over onto the left side means there's more uncertainty. So for all of that uncertainty, that's where you have to start building in the learning mode. And of course, if you get all the way to the far left side, you've still got high impact items, but a lot of uncertainty. And that's typically where you're going to put your most entrepreneurial or your innovation minded people because they kind of know how to function over there on that side of the continuum. You touched on a couple other ideas that I want to extrapolate on. One is you use the phrase empathy work. Can you tell me more about what that is and how you can integrate it into your day? Yeah, it's really, it's sort of the way I've evolved my customer development. A lot of the customer development stuff, in my opinion, originally was a lot of interviewing and you're just kind of checking off uh, boxes, filling out forms. That's all fine and good. But again, 
the more uncertainty there is, like if you're trying to do something brand new, customers actually don't really understand very well what the possibilities are. And so the way that you're interviewing them, the way you're interacting with them, you have to be way more careful. If you've got a known product, you're a big company and the market's really well understood and the problems are understood and the solutions are understood and you're going to go out and talk to customers and they're giving you feature requests, that's fine. You can write that stuff down. You can believe it. But if you're going out there because you've got some wacky new idea, some crazy new technology and you're trying to go and learn the market, you got to be really wary about what the customer says because they're not necessarily even able to articulate the needs that they have with respect to whatever it is you're talking about. And and so what they have to say is rather dubious. And so the way that you interact with customers where there's that type of uncertainty matters. It's important. And I think that that's really more around developing empathy. And so the practices of human-centered design or design thinking are, are sort of more appropriate, in my opinion, than classic customer development. And so what you're trying to do is you're not asking them questions that where they predict their future. Will you like this? Would you do this? Would you pay for this? How much would you pay? Customers are horrible at predicting their own future. And so you want to talk about their past. Those are facts. What have they done? How did they feel about something? What solutions are they using now? What are the workarounds that they've been doing? What you're trying to get at is with the empathy work, you're actually trying to get, you know, sort of a layer below understanding why they say what they say, understanding what motivates them, what's their aspiration. This again is where you might be able to glean insights, but you're also trying to glean how important a particular need is. How does it rank with other needs that they have? So you might have the right market, but they've got more pressing things on their mind. And so, yeah, eventually they might buy, but first they got to get these other obstacles out of their way. And so again, the empathy work goes a little bit deeper and you're trying to figure out, you know, is this an early adopter? Are they going to be first in line? Is this the type of person that'll spend the night in the parking lot outside of a department store in order to get my product? You're looking for patterns. And so the deeper that you go, I think that the more insights you can glean and you'll understand your market better and how to go after it. You also a couple times have touched on this idea of experiments. In your mind, what is an experiment? And I know it's a pretty broad definition, broad answer, but really what are the principles you think about when you're conducting experiments? And then what are some ways that you can really practically start to implement them into your business? Yeah, so it's not just throwing stuff against the wall. It's not just trying things. I like to take a disciplined approach to experiments. So have a hypothesis. If you're starting a new product, what has to be true for that product to succeed in marketplace? These are all assumptions. And then you can rank those between that same sort of two by two, that known versus unknown. And you're trying to get what's the most risky part of your endeavor. And now you're gonna hopefully try to eliminate the risk of that uncertainty by running experiments. And so you turn that assumption into a hypothesis. If I did X, Y percentage of customers will behave in way Z. What we're trying to do is get behavior. We're trying to see if the customers behave in a way that indicate that they want the value that I'm offering them or that they be willing to make some sort of a change in their behavior that indicates that I could successfully convert that potential customer into a user. So whenever we're selling a product or a service, 
we're essentially asking people to change part of their behavior. They're doing something now. We want them to do something different with our product. And so that change of behavior is really where there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of assumptions that we have that we're going to be able to get them to change. Well, so an experiment is without necessarily building the product. It's like an, an analogy. It's like, what can I do to get that customer to behave in a way that indicates that this is going right, that we're headed in the right direction, and that if we build that product, they're going to be a good candidate to buy. And so there's all sorts of versions of experiments. Way back in the day, I think Tim Ferriss actually made this popular in the four-hour work week was this idea of the landing page. So this is an experiment. You put up a landing page with your value proposition and a big buy now button or you know, get more information or, or whatever you're trying to test there, whatever your call to action is, you send that landing to who you think your ideal early adopter is, your ideal customer. If nobody clicks the button, you know, there's something wrong. It's either your idea or it's the wrong market or it's your wrong messaging in your value position. If a bunch of people do click the button, that's actually a decent sign that maybe you're onto something. And so there's successful businesses that got started with that simple landing page. You know, the internet's kind of littered with dead landing pages these days. So I'm not sure how, if it's as effective, but it's a great example of the behavior clicking that button indicates that that customer wants that value at some level, right? So it's not a super high fidelity experiment, but it's partly there. If it's positive, it, it gives you confidence to move on if it's super negative, you really do need to change something. So that, you know, there's value in that. When we teach this to large enterprises, uh, we get these people out of the building and they're designing and running experiments on real people out there in the world, trying to get them to behave in a way that indicates that they're onto something. Insurance company went out and pretended that they had a AI chat bot. And so they, you know, used a phone, would go up to these customers or these people and, and talk to them about insurance and see if they'd be willing to interact with this chat bot. And it was really just somebody back in the home office that was pretending to be that chat bot. So they're just measuring behavior of those people, whether that would satisfy them or be willing to use a chat bot to, you know, to solve some issue. Again, how you integrate it into the business, make it part of your sprint or your, your Kanban that you're going to have a day of running this experiment. And then you do the brainstorming and figure out what is the way that you can get customers to behave in a particular way. During the time of pandemic, it's obviously difficult, but you know, do a webinar. So depending on what your business is, that could be an experiment. If people sign up and attend a webinar based upon the positioning that you gave in an email or something or an app or a Facebook post or whatever it is, if people attend, I should say, you're not trying to optimize attendance based upon your skills at marketing. You're trying to optimize attendance because people are interested in the topic. I should say that because you might have an audience of growers and they could easily fill up a room and they actually haven't proven the value prop. So, you know, you don't want to over-optimize the call to action. What you want to do is make sure that people are into the topic. They think that there's value that they're going to get from the webinar. And then once you do the webinar, you have another call to action for the people that actually attend. And now you're starting to measure the efficacy of your value prop, as well as that there's really a market there for the product that you're developing. Yeah, that's a really good insight and helps clarify a lot thinking about really concretely and, and tactically 
how you can start to implement these experiments into your business and really look at it from a much more evidence-based approach as opposed to just winging it and trying a few things and not really having a lot of clarity or forethought about what you're executing on. Yeah, the discipline in how you approach experimentation matters, especially if you're getting funding from others, right? Like even startup investors, but also inside of businesses, you know, the owner or, you know, your leader, if you could start producing data that is from your interviews and, and your empathy work and your experiments, you're actually making a way better case for continuing the investment in your idea versus, you know, just trying to convince people how great the idea is. The evidence is going to win out every time. One other clarification point that I wanted to just get your perspective on is this idea of in the same vein of if you're constrained by time, if you're constrained by resources, whether it's an early stage startup, whether it's coronavirus has shut your company down, you're trying to figure out what to do. What happens if you conduct one experiment, two experiments, five experiments, 10 experiments, and you're not getting any traction? What would your reaction be or what would your approach be in that case? Yeah, I'm hoping that even when you're running experiments, you're getting contact information from the people that are you're interacting with. So you can really ask why. I think that there's, you know, entrepreneurialism is hard. And this is one of the reasons why the big opportunities are through the thick walls. And so if you're failing at all of these different things and you feel like you're banging your head against the wall, well, maybe that's because it's a really difficult problem to solve. And the other side is where all the riches are. Or maybe you're just giving yourself a headache. And that's tough to know. I think if there's no cracks showing, you know, and your head's hurting, it might be time to pivot. And I think, again, if you're approaching this with discipline, then you should know how to pivot. Have you learned anything, right? So the pivot isn't just, again, it's kind of like, kind of like experiments are not just trying things. A pivot isn't really willy-nilly either. The pivot is, okay, I'm going to keep one foot grounded in what I've learned, and then I'm going to change some other aspect of my business model, how I'm going to try that. So it's not just leaping over to something new. It's like, have I learned anything that I can now use as the basis for my next attempt? And so you could stay with the same customer and try a different need they have, or you can stick with the need that you think is out there and you change the customer, or maybe it's in, in altering the solution. So I, I think that you gotta, you know, you gotta pivot on all those, at least those three things, you know, you should try different things and among those three in order to see if you can crack the nut. But yeah, I mean, after a while, if you feel like the preponderance of evidence says this isn't going to work, then kill it. It actually feels better than to leave it sort of dangling there. Um, and again, I'll just say it's what a lot of big businesses don't do well. They'll, you know, they have zombie products out there in the universe that have some amount of traction, but have never resulted in it positive return on the investment and they're just still just kind of clunking along and you know at some point it's better to just slay it that's good feedback it's a challenge i'm sure anybody who's spent enough time in entrepreneurial endeavors has certainly encountered in some form or fashion you touched on something earlier that i thought was really interesting that i wanted to come back to that ties into a lot of this which is this idea of learning metrics tell me more about what those are and why they're so important Startup investors, again, do this really well. If you're investing in, in a company that doesn't have a functioning business model yet, how do you know that they're making progress? You can't measure revenues because they don't have any. And so 
in a lot of companies, very quickly we go to key performance indicators, KPIs, or outcomes and what is it, outcome and key resources or something, OKRs. And basically what they, they tend to do is like, if you do this X hundred times, we've figured out in the past that uh, somebody doing that a hundred times will have this positive result for the business down the road. And so that's how we people, we measure people based upon how many times they're doing something within some sort of time frame. And then they're given milestones. And when we achieve that calendar where the milestone, we look at, okay, did we get that far? But all of that is sort of this execution. And a matter of fact, calendars often rule the day. I had this experience in my first startup I was at where if 75% of the calendar had passed on a particular project, that meant that you were 75% done, even if the engineering was only 25% done. <laughs> that, that actually causes a problem when you get to 100% because it isn't done. And so the learning metric sides of things is how do we measure the progress? How do we measure that we understand that we're only 25% done and that is twice as good as we were a week ago or a month ago. And so the learning metrics are things like early on, it could be number of customers you're talking to and the results of experiments that you're running. And then eventually, if you're putting like an MVP out there or are engaging customers in other ways, you're starting to talk about the gross number of people that are interacting with your MVP or your app, or they're interacting with your webinars. And then you want to look at, well, what's my month over month growth of that number? And so there's, you know, the way I try to get people to imagine it is if you haven't built product yet, imagine what the user engagement metric ought to be when your product is done. The user engagement, which in my framework I call satisfied, is that somebody keeps coming back because they're getting the value that you promised them. So, you know, kind of a dumb example, if you're a YouTube user and you wanna be a YouTube star, which was YouTube's first market segment, by the way, that be a video star. Okay, well they upload, you know, one video per week and share it with a hundred people. So that's my satisfied metric or my active user metric, people who, Log in maybe three or four times a week, but upload a video and share it with a hundred friends once a week. So if you've not built any product, you still kind of put that out there as being, that is the metric that I'm trying to get to. Well, I have nothing today. So how do I make progress towards that, maximizing that number? And in my view, you start with engaging a number of customers and you have a Maybe you find 10, 25, 50, 100 customers that want to be YouTube stars. And then you build only these features or you can even do it by hook and crook using other, you do it by hand. Okay, out of you 100, how many of you will send me a video and I'm going to share it with 100 of your friends? So send me your email addresses for your friends and send me a video and you start measuring, okay, well, 10 people did that out of the 100. Okay, so I've got 10%. How do I grow that 10% number? And so you're learning whether your idea is working by producing this real behavior-based evidence. And now if I'm reporting back to my investor, hey, I'm seeing a you know 10% month-over-month growth of the number of customers that are engaged, even with what we would call a mechanical Turk MVP, the investor is going to be getting pretty excited about that because you're demonstrating progress on your business model. And maybe you even start charging those people. 
yeah, I charge them $10 per video or something or 10 bucks a month. I don't know. It's just an example of trying to understand where you're getting and then work backwards to where you are today. And how do you prove the business model? How do you make the case using evidence that you're making the right progress towards achieving that engagement number? Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. I'm going to paraphrase this to make sure I understand it. Essentially, it's this idea of using some sort of metrics to track the progress towards the end goal instead of just a metric that tracks the end goal or that just tracks revenue or sales, etc. Right. Yes, it's the progress towards. That's a really interesting concept. It makes a lot of sense. It's a great way to map out your efforts and your journey towards the end destination, even if the end goal hasn't been achieved yet. Right. Well, so in, at some point you pass a number where you go like, dang, this is actually working. We should start building the product and we need to get the minimum viable product out in order to be able to handle all of these users that are coming. And then in the Lean Entrepreneur, the value stream framework allows you to do the same thing with six other states in sort of this whole funnel from customers being aware to becoming beyond satisfied, becoming passionate. And so it allows you as you start to grow, you can figure out where on that journey, that customer from the customer perspective, where you can focus your energy and you should start seeing the growth if you're tracking the right metrics. Another topic that I want to touch on briefly, and we've talked about different pieces of this in a couple different ways, but I know you've also written and you teach about this idea of how to communicate and lead in uncertain times. Tell me, zooming a little bit out of just the perspective of the customer development world, how do you think about leading a team in a time of uncertainty? It's hard to do. I think that a lot of the learning that leaders have in the past is a really very top-down hierarchical command and control style of leadership. It's sort of a, you know, to me, a 20th century leadership method. And I think we're living in a different world now. And, and I think that while there are still skills in that that are valuable and you will need to use, I think what we see in these days is a need, again, for the word empathy vulnerability, understanding what this learning mode is, and then walking the talk. So demonstrating these type of things to your people so that they understand that that's 
you know, sort of the expected behavior from them as well. So I think that there's some great books out there. Brene Brown's Dare to Lead touches on that. General Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams does as well. And that one's super interesting, really, because the U.S. forces that went into Iraq in the early 2000s, they were the first group that ran into the new world, the first group that ran into this distributed networked world. They went in and didn't really have a problem deposing Hussein using their conventional methods. But then, you know, the civil war that broke out there and Al-Qaeda in Iraq and, and the rest was a crazy new fighting methodology that the U.S. forces struggled with until they changed their mindset, until they became agile, until they became distributed and networked and empowered the, you know, the squads on the street to be the source of information and make the right decisions in real time. And, and that's when the tables turned and the forces started succeeding was based upon really restructuring on doing things differently in the face of this networked complex world. Well, that's what businesses face. We're facing a different world today. We're facing a complex system. And so we have to adapt how we do that. And it starts at the top and the leaders have to understand that there's a lot of uncertainty and we can't just execute through uncertainty. Okay. So we have to be in learning mode. How do we do that? A leader standing up and just using the words, I don't know. I don't know the answer is like super powerful and it's not giving up. It just means, okay, so how do we figure out the answer? And now we start the empathy work and the experiments and the evidence-based decision-making to figure it out. And then once we figure it out, we already know we've got the execution engine that can handle it. I think it's so important. And both of those books are great recommendations. Brene Brown's a former guest on the show as well. And so we'll throw her interview into the show notes. But the idea of being humble and having humility in your approach to encountering uncertain situations is such a critical insight in leadership. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely love that book. I think one of the struggles that leaders have is that they are out learning these new skills. You know, there's just a ton of leadership consultancies out there and a lot of them are doing really well. And a lot of these leaders are learning concepts like empathy and empowerment and vulnerability. But I don't know that they have ways to apply it. And I think that that's really the tough part. And I think that the agile methodology, the agile thinking is a way to do that. And I think that digital transformation and some of these other innovation projects or applying what we've talked about today, a lot of these lean entrepreneur skills is a way then to put those into practice. One other topic that I wanted to touch on that we talked about a little bit in the pre-show is this idea of reinventing capitalism for the 21st century. Tell me a little bit about what you've been thinking about and what's been on your mind around that topic recently. Yeah. So it's really, you just touched upon it. I mean, we just came full circle around to it, which was great. I think that, that, again, digital transformation is not, hey, we need to build a mobile app. Digital transformation that we're going through is actually a digital revolution. Our very systems and processes and the way we organize businesses is based upon the assembly line. It's based upon this execution mode, efficiency over everything that dominated the 20th century capitalism. And it's just not working. It doesn't work to create a equitable society. And it also doesn't, I tell you, the big businesses don't feel like they're winning. They are struggling and they're running up against, you know, the big tech companies is just one part of it. They've sort of lost 
focus. They've lost this ability to create value for customers again. And it's a great opportunity for startups. And so I think that this whole concept that we were talking about, uncertainty across the whole organization, eating differently, using these lean entrepreneur techniques in that uncertainty, figuring out how to balance, you know, you brought up, Matt, the balance between the executing and, and the learning. All of these type of things will lead to new organizations that are functioning differently. And in order to make that sticky, I fundamentally believe companies will be completely restructured. So if you look at some of the big tech companies as well as some other successful startups, well, Spotify, I guess, is a big tech company now, but you know they all use this agile, they all use that two pizza team concept that Jeff Bezos talked about. And big businesses are going to convert their structures into adopting that because it's the only way they can focus on customers again and take in new information and be resilient to things like the pandemic. This is not the last time we're going to have an event like this that really kind of rocks the world. And so organizations are going to have to be different to be able to withstand that and also keep the economy in better balance. And so that's what I'm writing about disruption for all. You know, it's really a leadership book on how do you take those new skills and convert your business into a 21st century business. Brent, where can listeners find more about you and your work online? Yeah, so I'm Brant Cooper on all social media. I really encourage people to reach out. I respond to everything. Brant at Brant Cooper is my email address. If people want to check out or be involved at all in this Disruption for All book, they can go to bcoop.co forward slash D4A. I've also been doing some rants on YouTube. And so you can find me on YouTube talking about some of these things, uh, including topics like all of this antitrust stuff that's going on, which is all part of the equation. So really interesting times. I'm sure everybody feels the same about that. Well, Brant, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom. I really love the anecdote of you don't need a thousand customers. You just need to start with one. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It was a fun discussion. Awesome. All right. That is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. 
Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.